2: How you doing, Jason? Thank you for highlighting that. Rev is a real one. Been real since the 1980s, or since he was a kid, really. But uh, yeah, no, thank you for highlighting that. Have a wonderful evening. All right. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight on a solemn anniversary. Six months since far-right supporters of the former president stormed the U.S. Capitol. While many Republicans have done everything they can to downplay what actually happened, some are downright proud of their role in attacking American democracy— As they continue to spread the big lie, take Alabama Republican Mo Brooks, whose lawyers said in an actual court filing that Brooks believes that the 2020 elections were the subject of voter fraud and election theft. Brooks is one of three lawmakers who stopped the steal. Organizer Ali Alexander says helped him organize the rally along with Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar. Gosar has been in the news lately for his ties to white supremacist Nick Fuentes, with no consequences from Republican leaders. The New York Times calls his unapologetic association with Fuentes and his white nationalist America First organization the most vivid example of the Republican Party's growing acceptance of extremism. It's so bad that Gosar's brother called him a white supremacist on this very show for the whole nation to hear.
3: These people are white supremacists. OK, you, it, mm-hmm. how, you don't get to say you're not a racist when you're cavorting with racists, when you're giving, amplifying their message, when you're encouraging them, when you're refusing to denounce them.
2: And because literally everything is connected, Ali Alexander has said that he collaborated with Fuentes on his Stop the Steal movement. Meanwhile, the Republicans who aren't openly embracing extremism have spent the past six months attempting to gaslight America into thinking that maybe the insurrection wasn't that violent, or that the FBI or Antifa or the woke mob are responsible instead. It's gotten to the point where Republican voters are actually blaming President Biden and Democrats more than they blame Trump or Republicans for what happened. Republicans have done everything they can to fight a committee that would investigate what happened. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of unanswered questions out there. I mean, the FBI is still searching for suspects. They released a host of new video today of assaults on police officers, some of which may be disturbing to watch. Let's see one video. It includes cops getting tackled and pummeled to the ground, projectiles thrown into the ground, into the crowd, and insurrectionists snatching police officers' batons right out of their hands. The FBI still doesn't know who left Pipe bombs at the DNC and RNC the night before the insurrection, and we still don't know the status of the investigation into Ali Alexander. Though the Washington Post reported in February that the government is investigating potential ties between those physically involved in the attack on the Capitol and individuals who may have influenced them, such as Roger Stone and Alex Jones and Alexander. And questions remain about whether Republican lawmakers gave the insurrectionist tours in the days leading up to the attack. Joining me now is Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida. She was an impeachment manager in the first Trump impeachment and is a candidate for the United States Senate. And Congresswoman, I, I have to start with you on the open white supremacy that's being flaunted at this point by Paul Gosar. His own brother said he's a white supremacist. I don't understand how you, as a a, a black woman, or really anyone, can serve alongside people who are embracing white supremacy and not even embarrassed about it.
4: Well, Joy, it's good to be back with you. And look, I I did an op-ed a few months ago where I said, bring back shame, because we know that white supremacists have always been amongst us, which is sad enough in itself. But there used to be a time when certainly members of Congress didn't really want everybody to know it. But, you know, we know them by the fruit that they bear. We also know what happened on January 6th, although we have been asked to not believe our eyes and our ears. This is a sad day. It's a sad reminder of what happened six months ago. And regardless of members of Congress who are white supremacists or choose to hang out with them, regardless of those who helped plan or helped give tours or help to incite, we are going to get to the bottom of it. And I am so glad that the speaker has impaneled this the select committee. We are going to get to the bottom of it.
2: And I do have a question for you, sort of on a law enforcement kind of a theme. But does, does it surprise you? And, you know, in Florida is a small world, as you and I both know that people like Marco Rubio, who you're running against the United States Senate, who tweets Bible verses every day for random reasons. These people aren't saying to themselves, I don't want to be associated with white supremacists. Where are the speaker? Where is Marco Rubio? Where are all of these people who are constantly lecturing us about what history we're allowed to learn? Why aren't they saying anything?
4: Well, you know, Joy, a long time ago, someone told me I'd rather see a sermon any day than to hear one. So Rubio can send out all of the Bible verses that he wants to. We're looking at not what he says, but what he does. We're talking about a man, as you've indicated, thank you for bringing it up, who has not said one word to denounce white supremacists since he's been in office, by the way. We're talking about a man who voted against an independent commission that would investigate the insurrection that occurred on 1-6. And so, again, we know them by the fruits that they bear. Rubio has not delivered. And as you know, that is exactly why I am running Florida deserves better.
2: Let me read the statement that President Biden issued today. He said six months later, we can say unequivocally that democracy did prevail and that we must continue to work to protect, to preserve it. Um, That requires people of goodwill and courage to stand up to the hate, the lies, the extremism that led to this vicious attack, including determining what happened so that we can remember it and not bury it, hoping that we forget. We're seeing Republicans trying to bury it. Uh, But there are issues that are are frightening, I think. Law enforcement being involved, fighting other law enforcement, demanding that they not follow orders, Um, members of the military being involved. Um, Where would you start? If this was a police investigation and Val Demings was still the sheriff, where would you start in terms of this investigation? Would it be with lawmakers and their role? Where would you start?
4: Everybody counts, Joy. But as I've said many times before— Everybody is accountable, and that includes everyone who had any kind of role in what happened on January 6th. That includes the former president. That includes the members of the Senate. That includes the members of the House. That involves military, former or current, and law enforcement, former or current. We start at the beginning. We know that this did not just all happen on January 6th, but it had been planned for weeks and months. Who was involved in the planning? Who was involved in funding it? Who was involved in helping to excite it? Some of them we saw who had no shame again on camera on that day. But who else was involved in it? We saw the president. We saw members of the Senate. We saw members of the House. We saw the president's attorney. But we started the beginning. Who planned it? How did it happen? Who funded it? Who executed it? We've seen over 500 arrests from the FBI of those who actually were physically involved in beating police officers down and terrorizing members of Congress and the staff, their staff and the people who work in the Capitol. But we want to know the complete story and we're going to get to the bottom of it. And that's exactly what the select committee will do with or without Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader. We take that word for granted a lot <laughs> with or without his help.
2: Yeah, I'm going I'm to say it like a Floridian representative. Val Timmings, thank you very much for being here. I uh, really appreciate you. Making some time with me now is Matthew Dowd, chief strategist for the 2004 Bush-Cheney campaign and founder of Country Over Party. I'm so glad that you were available to talk with us tonight because, Matthew, it feels like things have actually gotten worse since January 6th, honestly. You know, I remember reading the reports about when Trump began his run for office, he inspired an uptick in um, white nationalism and in violent white nationalism. The chatter was, this guy is our guy. He's gone now. But even without his daily presence on social media, we now have members of Congress openly palling around with people who marched in Charlottesville, Nick Fuentes, who openly say we've got to return the United States to being a white Christian country, who just say that openly. And congressmen, people, they're not even embarrassed to be around them. What in the world is going on?
3: Well, I absolutely agree with you, Joy, that I think it's much worse than it was on January 6th. It's much worse than it was in November. It's much worse after January 6th. And part of the problem is, is because, because there's been no accountability, it's given permission to do more of this. And not only is it given permission to just average people out there who might do crazy things, it's allowed the Republicans just to continue this big lie that they've pushed across. I was yesterday, I was in Kentucky. I decided to go to Lincoln's birthplace and his boyhood home. And I was reflecting about it because one of the things Lincoln said was America will never be destroyed from outside. America will destroy itself. And I think that's what I fear about right now. And one of the things, if you think about this, what would happen if after 9-11, we had done nothing? We had done nothing. Right. Think about that. If we had done nothing after 9-11. And to me, though, there was less loss of life on January 6th. January 6th was worse than 9-11 because it's continued to rip our country apart and give permission for people to pursue autocratic means. And so I think we're at a much worse place than we've been. And as I've said, I think to you before, I think we're in the most perilous point in time since 1861 in the advent of the Civil War.
2: I do, too. I do, too. And it it, it frightens me. You know what scares me the most, Matthew, is that I'm not sure that most Democrats, at least elected Democrats in Washington, agree with us or as afraid as we are. Uh, You know, I I said yesterday, talking with Malcolm Nance uh, and Susan Del Percio, who's a Republican strategist, if you break down what this looks like to me, it looks— Directly like fascism. It looks like Mussolini's Italy. The, the brown shirts, the, the, the violence against our capital, the attempts to overthrow the government, the centering of white citizens as having to be the top citizens or else the country dies. And to see a Republican Party either because of cowardice or because they agree with it. Say, we're going to do that. We're going to go with that. If that's what it takes for us to have power, then fine, we'll take fascism. I don't know what you do with a country where one political party decides that, and you've only really got two.
3: Well, I, the only thing you can do is rid the country of that political party um, and completely rid it of it and, and make it suffer devastating losses in a series of elections. To me, there's no moral argument we can make against Republicans who've decided that moral yeah. positioning doesn't matter anymore. Well, I, I was thinking of this. You know, J.D. Vance, the charlatan who's running for U.S. Senate in Ohio. Uh, who's completely has created fictions and says whatever. He said something I actually agreed with at his announcement. And what he said was the Republican establishment doesn't care about its voters and thinks their voters are stupid and thinks their voters are bigots. What he should have said is, I don't care, like all the other Republicans. What you have in this country right now, and you know this, if you're in a relationship and somebody constantly lies to you, somebody does all kinds of things that shows you don't care about them, they think you're a Yahoo. Right. They, and yeah. that's what the, yeah. the Republicans think. Their base is bigoted and their base is stupid. And that's why they keep doing yeah. what they're doing.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the people I'm just looking here at my list of people who have influence now. Mike Lindell, who I, I, I think he needs analysis, not a public p- position. Um, you know, you, you've obviously Donald he Trump. People like Mo he Bruce. needs a couch and his pillow. He needs a couch and his pillow. Madison Cawthorn, who, you know, is the stolen valor guy. Mo Brooks. You know, it's, it's as if the Republican Party, in which you serve for quite a long time, has decided that the only people worthy of elevation are the basest people, the least um, moral people, that it almost is a virtue to be awful, and I, I wonder if you think that that is a reflection of something that's happening in the base. Is it because people have been locked down for a year? What is going on in the party at the base of it?
3: Well, you know, one of the things, one of the expressions that I grew up with is what, what's the purpose of locks? Locks are to keep honest people honest, right? And guardrails in politics are to keep decent, good people in their heart aimed in the right direction. And when you lose the guardrails and people have human nature and I can castigate a lot of people for a lot of things, but our leaders are supposed to give guardrails to humanity and, its worst in, and stop it from its worst impulses. What you have now is a sprint downhill to the basis amount. And I actually think today is worse than Donald Trump in the four years yeah. he was in president. They've taken it to a whole nother level. It's like somebody was successful in a Section 8 and now they're going to act even crazier because they want their own Section 8. So every single step, even the people you and I thought would stand up to it, I yeah. don't care. Just no, don't care.
2: They they absolutely do not. And they're elevating people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is their leadership. It's. It, it is worse than Trump. Uh, Matthew Dowd, I always appreciate being able to talk to you. Thank you so much. And up next on the readout, two really, really big guests. Nicole Hannah Jones and Tana nehisi Coates join me on the same day. Both announced, both of them, that they're joining the faculty at Howard University. A major, 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 major coup for Howard. It is Hannah Nicole uh, Smith's first cable interview since telling the University of North Carolina, no, she's declining their belated offer for tenure. And Roden Farrow is here with his new investigative reporting. Britney Spears the conservatorship fight and the sudden resignation of her manager and tonight's absolute worst pretending that you support the police just for the politics when your actions on January 6th showed you really don't the readout continues after this I said Smith hi everyone
3: it's Katie Fang
2: major recruiting coup, Howard University announced that journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates, both MacArthur geniuses, are joining the faculty in the fall. Hannah-Jones will become the inaugural night chair in race and reporting at Howard. She will also create a new initiative aimed at training aspiring journalists and has already secured nearly $15 million to launch the effort. Coates will be a writer in residence in the university's College of Arts and Sciences and hold the Sterling Brown chair in the English department. Howard's win counts as the loss to the University of North Carolina. Hannah Jones, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for her work on The New York Times 1619 Project and a UNC alum was originally set to fill the school's own prestigious night chair in race and investigative journalism. After a rigorous review and recommendation, followed by howls of complaints from right-wingers offended by the 1619 Project, Hannah Jones was at first denied tenure by the Board of Trustees. That sparked a fierce backlash, which led to the university to reverse course and offer her tenure last week. For the record, the professorship has always been a tenured position. Breaking her silence, Hannah Jones issued a statement today that laid out in great detail how painful this entire process has been. She writes, why would I want to teach at a university whose top leadership chose to remain silent, to refuse transparency, to fail to publicly advocate that I be treated like every other night chair before me? These times demand courage, and those who have held the most power in this situation have exhibited the least of it. The burden of working for racial justice is laid on the very people bearing the brunt of the injustice and not the powerful people who maintain it. I say to you, I refuse. And joining me now is the brand new inaugural night chair in race and reporting at Howard University, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and incoming Sterling Brown chair in the Department of English at Howard University, ta Coates. I am so jealous that I'm no longer teaching this semester. I finished my semester last year just in the nick of time at Howard. Uh, but welcome, welcome, welcome to the Howard family. I'm so proud of both of you and excited. I want to start with you, Nicole. You wrote this phenomenal piece, and I hope everyone will read it in which you really worked through the pain of being denied this opportunity at the place where you went to, to, to graduate school, you are an alum, and how much you said the university gave you and fed into you and, and, and sewed into you to only have this happen. I just want to just for a moment, talk to us about how that felt to have that go through that whole process only to be told no tenure.
1: Thank you for uh, having us on tonight and, and thanks for the conversation. Um, it was humiliating it was um deeply hurtful and it was it was enraging because as you know you don't grow up a black child in this country without being told that you have to work twice as uh, hard to get half as far that you have to be twice as good um but i've been that and to do everything uh that you're told to do to be successful and then have them change the rules at the end um at a school that I am an alum of and for a job that I didn't seek out, but that I was recruited for. Uh, it just, um, it just confirms, you know, my life's work, everything that ta and I write about, uh, about how black people are treated in this country and how, even if you follow all of their rules um, in the end, it's not going to guarantee that you'll be treated fairly. And, and that's why yeah. I fought this. That's why I demanded uh, the vote. And that's why I ultimately made the decision to walk away.
2: And, you know, the thing is that we're kind of taught, and you you talked about this a little bit as well, those of us who went to, you know, PWIs um, and, and not to HBCUs undergrad, you have in your head growing up that, you know, the, the pinnacle is to go to fill in the blanks, the school of your dreams, Harvard, Yale, whatever school it is. And, you know, I was talking with Jason Johnson, um, he was hosting Ari's show today about the fact that Set us back a generation, the schools that were producing the greatest minds in American history, the minds that broke the back of segregation and the rules that had been in this country in place since the 1619, which is why you wrote that project, you know, the rules that excluded us were—came from HBCUs. Do you feel like you're going to Howard and saying no to UNC after they belatedly offered you tenure? Do you think that that's going to spark more young people to change the vision in their minds to Howard—
1: I certainly hope so. And I know that Tanahazi hopes so as well. I mean, look, I chose Notre Dame because I felt as a Black woman, I had to have this certain credential that they uh, if I wanted white society to believe that I was actually intelligent and capable, then I needed need to have an elite white institution on my resume. And I hated my time at Notre Dame. It was traumatizing. I haven't been back there since 1999. It's the first place I was ever called. The N-word was was on that campus. And so we have to we have to get to the point where we ask ourselves, we deserve to be at those places. Absolutely. But is that the best thing for us? And, and so I certainly hope that us making this decision, a choice, right? Uh, this is not a consolation prize for me. This is what I wanted. I decided I was going to go to a historically black college. I had other options and I didn't want to go anywhere else. That other students will realize, as you said, Howard University um, has played of any kind of uh, academic institution in this country, played the largest role in black people achieving rights of any institution in this country. Right. The tradition of doctors, lawyers, professionals coming out of HBCU still um, is an amazing tradition to be a part of. And we don't need to feel that we have to get validation from these other institutions. We can come home and build our own.
2: Yeah, and ta I have to bring you in here. Uh, and, and I want to thank you because I know you don't do a ton of TV, so I'm very honored uh, to get to get to talk to you tonight. I feel like Can I'm you talk talking about my lighting? We're going to work on that. We're going to send you a ring light. you you got a great new job, so we're sure, going to get sure, you a ring light. we going to do something We're going to hook you up. I feel like I'm talking to the Takala and Okoye uh, of academia right now, so Wakanda forever. Um, you you have written you know so searingly about— The theft that has undergirded American society, right? The plunder, as you've put it. And I think part of that has been psychic, right? It has been, for so long, accepting the bland narrative that lionized these founders as sort of a a bedtime story, rather than confront the real pain that's in the history that built us to be strong as we are, Um, do you think that this chapter teaches the people at UNC anything about the, the, um, the ramifications, the consequences of that plunder? Or do you think they say, good, two less problematic black people that, we, that, have to, that are going to tell our poor white students who are so fragile that they can't handle the truth, they won't tell them that now? What do you think right. they learn?
0: Well, I I think one of the things that was clear uh, in Nicole's statement that when we use the the, uh, term UNC, uh, we're we're talking about a fairly uh, big uh, community. Uh, UNC is not merely its board of trustees. UNC is the students who protested on behalf of Nicole. UNC is the dean at the School of Journalism, Dean King, who fought on behalf of of Nicole. UNC is the Department of Journalism there that is regrettably uh, named after somebody who is the antithesis of journalism, but nevertheless advanced Nicole's uh, package. I, I think that has to be said because, Nicole, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe UNC is also the oldest public uh, university in this country. And what that means is that this too is theft, because this is an institution of Black people in North Carolina and our public institutions in general that we pay into. Uh, and what has happened is that uh, the Black students and the white students and you know students of all you know races and creeds at, at UNC has been denied the council of arguably the most decorated uh, journalist in America right now. Um, yeah. Nicole Hannah Jones, if I can just sing her praises, uh, is is not just the author of 1619. She is a Peabody winner. She is a uh, 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 National Magazine winner. She was hot before 1619. And as much as I'm happy that she's coming to Howard, I am also sad for those
2: students. <laughs> yeah. No, I am too. I am. I absolutely, I, listen, she spoke at my class, and my students were mesmerized. They were afraid to ask questions. They were so... <laughs> Absolutely mesmerized by her. And I said all of them copies of the 1619 Project uh, as part of their little package at the end. But, you know, I have to ask you to just stay with you for a moment, Um, Ta-Nehisi. Why do you think, if you can step outside of it just for a moment and look at what um, Nicole wrote in terms of what she created in terms of the 1619 Project, look at the things that you've written, the things Adam Serwa has written. They've been searing, but they're just facts, right? They're not dangerous in and of themselves. They're just ideas. Why do you think that people on the right are so terrified of these facts?
0: But they are. But they are dangerous. They are. They're they're extremely dangerous. The, The political order in this country is predicated on a bedtime story. Um, the history is not merely something that lives outside of the politics. There's a reason why the Confederate flag hung over the state of South Carolina. There's a reason why those statues were, were erected. Um, they, they are a part of the political order. They justify, uh, uh, the anti-democratic power, uh, that, that, that exists in this country. And so, um, you know, the one thing I, I will say about that, and Joy, you mentioned this is that. You know, HBCUs. Frankly, not just Howard. Whether it be Morehouse, whether it be you know A whether it be yes. FAMU, whether it be Coppin, whether it be you know Morgan. Uh, we Don't have Bethune always in there. been there, Don't Redoub. forget <laughs> Bethune Cookman. Bethune yeah, Cookman. They can all <laughs> spell them. Well, let's go. I mean, the whole community up yeah, because it's not just Howard. These have always been readouts and places. Uh, where one uh, would say a more truthful, more accurate and more, you know, as it turns out, searing a uh, version of America w- was rendered to his students. And I think that's important.
2: And do, do, uh, to come back to you, Nicole, do you fear that parts of um, white America are just going to further retreat into the bedtime story that this rejection of, of of true history, we're seeing it in Texas where they're banning book events because they just don't want to hear the real story, of the Alamo. Just give us the bedtime story. Do you fear that that retreat is just going to get more intense over time? And if it does, what are the consequences of that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've said that the same places that are trying to ban uh, the teaching of critical race theory, that are trying to ban the 1619 Project which is actually, you know, they're just trying to ban the teaching of the true racist history of this country. Those are the same places that are introducing and passing laws to restrict the vote, right? Those are uh, places that are trying to ensure minority rule and that the, uh, the people who uh, the majority are supporting cannot actually have control of the politics of state. So these things are going hand in hand. And that's why when ta says that ideas are dangerous, we know there's a reason black people during slavery were not allowed to read, right? There's a reason why there were prohibitions during slavery on abolitionist literature, because ideas change action. And the way that you sustain Mm -hmm. an unequal society is by making us think that this is an equal society. And so if you don't succeed, it's because you haven't tried enough. So it's not incidental that after we see the largest um, protest for civil rights and black rights in the history of this country, and when you started to see the language changing, and even white people who had uh, before rejected the idea of systemic inequality starting to say, well, maybe this isn't the country I thought it was. That is then why you see this backlash, to say, actually, no, No. if you learn that history, they're saying you're bad, white people. They're saying that that you are evil and we can't teach this to you. So none of this is incidental, and it is. It's very dangerous. We've seen this before. Yeah,
2: well guess what's gonna happen? Howard University is about to turn out students thousands and thousands of minds into the world of journalism over the next many, many years when the two of you are associated with that university who are going to tear down the house. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. I am so proud of both of you. I adore both of you. And I, listen, I'm go going to take a class. Can I thank sign up? You, I just need to get a little, I just want to audit the class. Just let me audit. Uh, thank you for being here. Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I'm not worthy. Thank God for both of you. Thank you both for being here. Yes, you are. (laughs) Appreciate you both. Thank you. Okay. Woo! President Biden today making yet another appeal to Americans to please, come on, get your behinds vaccinated. Meanwhile, Congressman Marjorie Q. Green makes yet another ridiculously misinformed statement about the virus. It's deja vu all over again. Will it ever
1: end? Ever? We'll be right back.
2: Storms by Marjorie Taylor Greene are a petri dish of misinformation, racism, looney-tunery, and very bad public health advice. The latest one includes the claim that no one cares about the Delta variant and that all voters are over COVID. Well, over it or not, COVID is not over us, and outbreaks are returning with a vengeance. More than 125 people who attended a summer camp run by a Houston-area church have tested positive for COVID-19. Multiple cases of the Delta variant have been traced to that outbreak. Galveston County officials confirmed that today. Cases involving Delta have been confirmed in all 50 states in the U.S. And surprise, the variant is especially risky in parts of the country with low vaccination rates. Today, President Biden implored Americans to please get vaccinated, linking it to something Margie the QAnon lady claims to know all about, patriotism.
0: Fully vaccinated Americans have a high degree of protection, including against this Delta variant. Please get vaccinated now. It works for your neighborhood, for your country. It it sounds corny, but it's a patriotic thing to do.
2: Joining me now is Dr. Vin Gupta, critical care pulmonologist. And Dr. Gupta, I feel like at this point. There are three kinds of people who are not vaccinated. There are people who are afraid, afraid of the consequences, fearful there's something in the vaccine that will hurt them. People who are overconfident and think they can just eat nutritious food. And people who are political and are doing the Marjorie Green thing, being like, ha, I'm not going to get vaccinated on the lips. What do you do about any of those three people? I'm not sure any of those people's minds can be changed.
6: Uh, good evening, Joy. Great to see you. You know, I do think uh, that there's an opportunity to reach at least two of those groups. And I'll say just to, to the congresswoman, that I think she's thinking short-term here. Uh, we, we know that in the summer is going to lead to a respite and transmission. COVID does not like warm, dry air. Turns out the 14th congressional district in Georgia, which she represents is one of the least vaccinated congressional districts in the entire country. So she should be really careful betting this short-term play here that people are over it because come the fall, winter, that's going to be ground zero for a rise in hospitalizations, a rise, unfortunately, in deaths. What I'd say is, and I think your team actually, Joy, might have an X-ray that I'd like to show all your viewers. Sure. Um, and, and the idea here is, I think we've lost the narrative here on uh, to young people, especially on why they need to get vaccinated. This is uh, an X-ray from a thirty-year-old patient of mine that I cared for a few weeks ago. The threat perception, Joy, just does not. It's not the same threat level that older, say, my parents' generation feel when they think about COVID that younger people say, well, you know what? It's older people. Those are pre-existing conditions that are going to end up in the ICU. Turns out that's not what we're seeing. I'm seeing it with my own two eyes. You're vulnerable if you're young to the Delta variant. We're seeing it across the country. Maybe we need to call it something different like COVID-21, but we need <laughs> to make it crystal clear that this is a different threat than the original version of the virus was, specifically the young people. The,
2: the other thing that I'm seeing just— uh, anecdotally, is that there's also a an, an attitude that is developing among the vaccinated that, look, we're going to live our hot vac summer. We're going to travel. We can now go where we want to go, eat indoors, do what we want. And if these people don't want to get vaccinated, that's their problem. And that maybe they'll just be a part of the country where they just don't get vaccinated. And I'll just won't go there. I'll just avoid. won't go to Texas. I won't go to Mississippi. I'll just stay away from them. In the end, can we Can we sustain that? Or at some point, do the unvaccinated represent a threat to the vaccinated?
6: Oh, absolutely. And that's exactly what we're seeing when it comes to these emerging variants. I mean, Joy, the reason why we're seeing these dangerous variants emerge is in part because the rest of the world is not vaccinated. And that's why you're seeing a Delta variant that's eight times more lethal, we think, by initial studies than the original version of the virus. So absolutely, if we have close to home these huge pockets thirty to forty percent of the country that's not vaccinated that's just a sink that's a that's a that's a lab experiment at scale for variants to arise that will pose a threat to us all I'll say uh, quickly if I may joy one of the questions I get from a lot of people who are hesitant about getting the vaccine or curious they they wonder well if I get fully vaccinated and I go unmasked out in public can I bring the virus home to my unvaccinated kiddos yeah and this is where I think we you know this is where I think we really need to Think carefully about what does being fully vaccinated mean? People want to be protected from the hospital, and all the vaccines, that appears, do that really well. But I don't know if two doses—I think two doses is better than one when it comes to this issue of transmission. We know that the Pfizer vaccine really dramatically reduces your risk of transmission of the virus. Same with Moderna. I'm not convinced one dose of Johnson & Johnson necessarily is the same as two doses of Pfizer and Moderna when it comes to transmission.
2: And lastly, do you think at this point, I mean, we're begging and paying people in this country to get vaccinated, when in Africa, I think the vaccination rate is like 2 percent. There are countries around the world who would do anything to have these vaccines. Would it be more efficacious at this point to start sending them around the world if Americans don't want them?
6: Oh, absolutely. I think scarcity is motivating. So, frankly, I think if we start sending Excess supply out now, it's going to motivate people who have yet to get the vaccine. it will be a great motivator. And two, that's the best way to safeguard global public health. Let's vaccinate countries that barely have any access to the vaccine. So I'm with you
2: 100%. Yeah, the African continent is really suffering other places too around the world. Uh, let's send those vaccines out. And we got to pay people a million dollars to make, get them here. It's pretty incredible. Dr. Vin Gupta, the person who convinced me not to be afraid to get vaccinated, is you, Dr. Gupta. So People can't minds can be changed because you changed mine. Um, Dr. Van Gupta, thank you. Still ahead. January 6th exposed one of the biggest hypocrisies being peddled by many GOP lawmakers. I will explain in tonight's absolute worst. But first, the toxic nature of some guardianships and conservatorships, like the one currently putting Britney Spears through the ringer. Ronan Farrow joins me next. Big news tonight in the ongoing Free Britney saga. Tonight, Spears' court-appointed attorney filed a motion to resign just two weeks after Spears told a court that she wanted to find her own attorney, and a day after her longtime manager resigned, citing Spears' desire to retire in a letter to Spears' conservators. Now, it's the latest fallout from Spears' attempts to remove her father, Jamie, from controlling her fortune and her life. In court, she called her situation abusive, adding, we can sit here all day and say, oh, conservatorships are here to help people. But ma'am, there's a thousand conservatorships that are abusive as well. And she's right. Brittany is caught up in a toxic, pun intended, unregulated legal morass affecting more than one and a half million Americans, most of them elderly or disabled. Last week, a judge rejected Spears' request to have her father removed from his role. The following day, the professional co-conservator, Bessemer Trust, asked to be removed from its role in her finances, citing her June testimony. Britney alleged that she's being medicated against her will and forced to work, adding fuel to the fire of the long-standing Free Britney movement that gained major traction earlier this year following a New York Times documentary.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, Britney Spears!
3: And she walks
0: down and then passes the stage where the performance is going to be. Keeps walking, keeps walking.
2: Doesn't say anything on stage, doesn't give any interviews with reporters, does not announce the residency that she's there to announce.
3: That's it? This, we've so, been waiting for this live stream and she just walking right by? she's just
2: walking by. Wow. in a new piece in The New Yorker, Ronan Farrow and Gia Tolentino detail in depth how Spears got into her conservatorship nightmare and how it reflects the larger abuses of the system. A family friend who helped put the conservatorship in place said that she now regrets it. Quote, at the time, I thought we were helping and now and I wasn't. And I helped a corrupt family seize all this control. Wow. And my friend Ronan Farrow, investigative reporter for The New Yorker, joins me now. So excited to talk with you, Ronan. Okay, let's let's start with the breaking news, though. The resignation of Britney Spears' lawyer. What's the significance?
5: So Britney Spears is uh, both manager, Larry Rudolph, of many years and now reportedly in the last few hours, her court-appointed attorney uh, are on their way out of this arrangement. And I think that reflects joy. Uh, An understanding that's been overdue for many years of just how desperately and how repeatedly Britney Spears has tried to get out of this conservatorship. And, you know, in addition to this strange saga of how this came to be around Spears and the fact that now individuals who initially helped set this up because they thought it was in her interest are pulling back that support. You know, you correctly pointed out the much larger population affected by this and the fact that we talked to a lot of experts who said Britney Spears's case opens up onto a, a set of problems a whole lot of people deal with in these arrangements, a whole lot of situations in which it is ripe for exploitation and abuse.
2: And you know what? I think that's the thing that it's hard to get our head around, right? Britney Spears is young, rich and famous. How on earth could something that you and I have talked about this offline has, has happened to other people who are maybe elderly or disabled? How did this, which is horrible enough, right? Because they don't have her money and her, her clout. How did this happen to her?
5: Well, in some ways, Britney Spears' fame and her wealth make her atypical. Uh, you know, she I think was placed in a state of emotional distress, as you might imagine, as very understandable, because she was hounded by the paparazzi everywhere. She had very little space in her life to just live. Um, and and the fame and the money also meant that her family was really riven by struggles over who would control her fortune, who would control her career. And we document all of that in this piece. Um, But in other ways, you know, Britney Spears' case is, in the eyes of a lot of disability rights attorneys, fairly typical. One thing that we see play out in these cases, Joy, is if a conservatorship uh, is uh, leading to a situation where a conservatee like Britney Spears is doing well under the conservatorship, Britney Spears has toured. She's made uh, yeah. you know, a, a great deal of money for a lot of people around her. That can be used as evidence that the conservatorship is working great. And yeah. then, if the conservancy is doing poorly, these experts describe that can be used as evidence that oh, the conservatorship was necessarily necessary all along. And you know, I, I want to caution to say. These can be helpful arrangements, they can be necessary arrangements, but clearly they can also be arrangements that are ripe for abuse, especially in cases like Britney Spears's case, where you're dealing with someone who pushes the outer edges of who this should be applied to. Because she is clearly whatever other mental health struggles she may have, and they may well be grave, as people in her camp are suggesting, sure. she is high-functioning as well.
2: And she's high-functioning, but she's also a moneymaker for her dad. I think the thing that's the most disturbing about this is the appearance, at least, that the father wants to keep her working, keep her not pregnant, keep her ability to make money because he financially benefits. Once the lawyer is gone and the publicists have resigned and all the people involved who were stopping her from being able to petition to get rid of the dad— Do you think that this now opens the door for her to be able to separate from her father? She's not a child. How can he continue to control her and control her money?
5: Jamie Spears, her father's involvement is one of the more peculiar aspects of this case, Joy, because so many people close to Britney Spears, and we talked to dozens of people around this conservatorship, people who knew her before and during. Uh, so many people remarked that you know she had an incredibly strained relationship with her father, that her father could be emotionally abusive to her. You know, we document him, uh, you know, calling her some pretty horrific epithets. Uh, and, and in ways that would lead someone to, to say the least, never want uh, that person with that relationship to control their finances and their person. And, you know, she has has filed over the years to limit his control. And right now he is only conservator of her estate, not conservator of her person. Uh, that role yeah. has gone to a court appointed person. But the fact that he's still involved at all, as you point out, is striking. And I, I certainly hope that as we see this exodus in the wake of this piece that we've published, uh, you know, there's also attentiveness on the part of the, the professionals in the court system that one of Britney Spears's main objections was her father's involvement, uh, you know, and that he not be left behind as the only person with a, a thumb over her life.
2: Do people prevent this from happening? I mean, as you've looked at this and, and done the journalism on it, should people be doing like living wills? Like, what, what can you do to make sure that you maintain control over your life if you become disabled somehow?
5: It's a great question. You know, I, I would say that it's got to come at a policy level. Uh, this really isn't about anything that Britney Spears could have done differently yeah. beforehand. You know, I, I think that uh, there are people around this who argue, well. Uh, You or I or many people uh, at you know a a standard level of mental health functionality might push back more vigorously, uh, you know, in a more concerted or strategic way. Earlier, Britney Spears, when she gave that explosive testimony in court, said, "Well, years have gone by. I've tried because I felt I wasn't getting heard," and you know that's something to understand. In these cases, they're often applied to people who do have sincere mental health struggles and who are less equipped to push back. All the more reason why I turn again to. Policy reform, yep. making sure the courts keep an eye on these situations.
2: Another thing we got to make some policy on. Ronan Farrell, you are the best. A th- great journalism. Everyone should read this piece, Ronan Farrell. Thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate I got it. You, Joy. Okay. okay. Cheers. And up next, okay, conservatives just love the police when they're keeping those pesky old Black Lives Matter protesters in line, of course. But when it comes to punishing white insurrectionists, not so much. Tonight's absolute worst is next. Stay right there. The twice-impeached one-term president and his harem of congressional followers continue to claim that all Democrats want to defund the police. Sadly, in the six months since the insurrection that led to the death of three police officers, Republicans have made clear just how little they actually care about law and order. First, there's the whitewashing of the January 6th assault on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. On that day, more than 140 members of law enforcement were wounded. One officer lost the tip of their finger. Others were smashed in the head with bats poles and pipes. Many were subjected to these types of verbal and physical assaults. A warning, it's disturbing to watch. Given their claims of law and order, you would assume that Republicans would run, rain down fire and fury on those individuals who harmed those officers. Wrong. Instead, they joined them by openly dismissing the officers on the front lines. Twenty one members of the House Republican caucus voted against a bill to award congressional gold medals to the officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th. Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde refused to shake the hand of D.C. Metro Police Officer Michael Fanone, who was brutally beaten while protecting him. Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar continues to target the police officer who shot the insurrectionist who breached the Speaker's lobby. Oh, and then there's Kevin, good old spineless House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. For weeks, Officer Fanon had asked to meet with Kevin, but to no avail. When he finally did, Kevin refused to publicly denounce the whitewashing of the January 6th attack. Is that what they mean when they say Blue Lives Matter? Well, naturally, hysterical, hysterical Republicans like Ted Cancun Cruz have denied these claims fact check, Mr. Uh, Vacation in Mexico, Biden has vowed to spend $260 million more than the orange guy on the police. Also, it was Republicans who literally voted against funding for the police in the American rescue package. So tonight, so for pretending that they actually care about the police when they really don't, the Republican Party is the absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout.